have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Siegel, the podcast that breaks down what's happening in the world and how we got here. On today's episode... It was dramatic and entirely unexpected. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has just announced that he and the entire Russian government will resign. From a certain standpoint, you have to sympathize with Vladimir Putin. He's created a system that depends on him and that he can't leave. But first, here's what happened in the world this week. Mr. President, the managers on the part of the House of Representatives are present and ready to present the articles of impeachment, which have been preferred by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. Last week was a historic week in the United States, with the impeachment trial of President Trump officially beginning on Thursday. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, swore in the senators who are going to act as the jurors in the trial. All senators now stand or remain standing uh, and raise their right hand. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution. And On Tuesday, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, will reconvene the Senate and they're going to vote on the rules of the trial. This is a big story, obviously, so we'll be coming back to this next week as the trial starts to unfold. Following the admission by Iran that it was Iran's military that mistakenly shot down the Ukrainian passenger jet that killed dozens of Iranian citizens, Tens of thousands of Iranians took to the streets early this week to protest the regime, and in particular, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. They're shouting here, death to the dictator. In response to this, on Friday, the supreme leader Khomeini gave a speech where he lamented the plane crash, calling it a bitter incident. But warned Iranians that they were playing into the hands of evil governments like the United States and the UK and others by voicing their frustration in the wake of the incident, saying that to the extent that the Iranian people were saddened and grieved by the incident, their enemies were overjoyed to the same extent. Well, just in closing, and we're going to sign right now, but it just doesn't get any bigger than this, not only... On Wednesday, the United States and China signed what they're calling the first stage of a trade deal that's aimed at easing the tensions in the trade war between the two superpowers. It's not clear at the moment what the extent of the impact of this deal is going to be. Uh, The New Deal is cutting some of the tariff rates on $120 billion worth of goods in half, but it leaves a lot of the other tariffs in place as they were. Uh, China has committed to getting rid of some health standards and some licensing and inspection rules that the United States has always seen as a way of blocking a lot of American goods. And then another interesting part of the New Deal is uh, how it attempts to strengthen intellectual property protection. 
So in the past, American companies had long complained that if they wanted to do business in China, they would have to hand over valuable technology and trade secrets, and China has agreed to stop requiring transfers like that. Probably the biggest weakness of this deal, though, is unlike other trade deals, which usually appoint some kind of neutral third party to oversee any complaints of the deal, the United States and China have decided to try to work out any issues on their own. So they created something called the Bilateral Evaluation and Dispute Resolution Offices to receive and evaluate any complaints. But this makes it hard to see how the United States might be able to really effectively enforce some of the provisions in the deal and what would happen if China just kind of ignored some of these promises. And finally, there's been some real controversy in the Vatican this week. A high-ranking official in the Catholic Church, Cardinal Robert Serra, released a book on Wednesday called From the Depths of Our Hearts. And the retired Pope, Pope Benedict, who retired in 2013, is listed as a co-author of the book. In the beginning of the book, Pope Benedict writes an essay in support of celibacy in the Catholic Church, saying that it does not seem possible to realize both vocations, meaning marriage and priesthood, simultaneously. This is a rebuke to the current Pope, Pope Francis, who is proposing to allow married men to be ordained as priests in the Amazon region. But when it was announced that Pope Benedict would be listed as a co-author, sources close to him refuted this and said that Pope Benedict had not agreed to be listed as a co-author. It's worth mentioning that the retired Pope is 92 years old, and it's difficult for him to speak articulately, let alone author a book. So critics are saying that Cardinal Sarah has manipulated the retired pope and forced him to write this or simply used his name, and it's just a way to use Pope Benedict in his attack on Pope Francis. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. This week, there was some shocking and confusing news out of Moscow. It happened when Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, was addressing lawmakers at his State of the Union address. It all began with Putin speaking to lawmakers and proposing key constitutional changes to weaken the role of president, the very job he holds now. The Duma or parliament should have the power to appoint prime ministers and the cabinet, he said. Another power should also be devolved, including to an obscure body called the State Council. That was CBC News. And then just hours after that address. A major reshuffle of the Kremlin. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has just announced that he and the entire Russian government that will was resign. CNN. So this has left critics and reporters all around the world in massive confusion as to what this really means. Putin's announcement was somewhat vague. And as of yet, the consequences of the reshuffling of the government are not clear. But what does seem clear is that in some way, this is a move by Putin to ensure that he'll be able to hold on to power after his current term as president comes to an end in 2024 and he's going to be forced to leave the presidency. And basically shuffling power into other regions of the government that he could then move into after his presidency ends. And maybe it's because the announcement was a bit vague, but the reaction so far has been not one of uproar and protest, but kind of indifference in Russia. A lot of people say that they're not surprised, that no one really expected Putin to really step away from power in 2024. It seems like a lot of Russians are sort of resigned or even embracing the idea of Putin holding on to power for life. Putin has been ruling in Russia for 20 years, 
a lot of young people have never known a Russian without him. So who is Vladimir Putin? And how did he rise to hold the position that he holds today, where he might become Russia's life-serving autocrat? Well, we should probably start in 1968, when Vladimir Putin is only 16. A Soviet film came out that year called The Shield and the Sword. It was about a Russian spy who traveled from Latvia to Nazi Germany, and using his mastery of the German language and his steel nerves, he's able to infiltrate the German ranks and procure vital intelligence that ultimately helps to take down the Nazi forces. Putin loved this movie, so much so that he tried to volunteer for the KGB, Russia's secret intelligence agency, but uh, they didn't let him in because that's not really how the KGB works. But he was so inspired by the heroes he saw in these Soviet films that he enrolled in German classes in high school and eventually would become fluent in the German language. And he also became a black belt in judo and a national master of sports in sambo. And at the very end of his law degree, when he was 27, he was finally approached by the KGB, which is the actual way that you can join the secret agency, and he joined up. With his skills in the German language, he was sent to Dresden in Germany, and that's where he was still serving as a deputy at the KGB office in 1989. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings, reporting tonight from Berlin. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. Something, as you can see, almost a party on. How do you measure such an astonishing moment in history? That was ABC News. So amidst all the celebration and euphoria and warm feelings, there's a lot of tension happening in East Germany because the people living there are becoming increasingly resentful that they still are experiencing a lot of infringements on their freedoms. And protests start to erupt in East Germany. And at some point, tens of thousands of them are in the streets in Dresden and they approach the KGB office where Putin is working at the time alone without his superior as deputy. And it's a panicked moment. There's not nearly enough officers there to take on the crowds that are swarming them. And when he tries to get on the phone with Moscow, the response is that Moscow is quiet. Later in life, Putin would recall this moment as particularly devastating. He would say, the business of Moscow is silent. I got the feeling that the country no longer existed, that it had disappeared. It was clear that the union was alien and that it had a terminal disease without a cure, paralysis of power. So he receives this message, he can't get in touch with his superior, and he needs to decide what to do to take on these approaching protesters. And so he goes outside and he basically just poses to the crowds approaching him. He says that they have the weaponry and the means to take the protesters out, and they will start to open fire on anyone that crosses their threshold. And that message is enough to scare them away. You can see this as a really pivotal moment in Putin's life, where he learns that even just the appearance of strength and resolve can have real consequences and can give you real power. With the fall of the Soviet Union, Putin has to return to Leningrad, where he was born, in 1990. Soon it'll become St. Petersburg. He's 37 years old, 
and he's forced to move back in with his parents with his wife and two daughters. And he starts working at a local university there and becomes pretty good friends with a professor there who will soon become the mayor. This is a really hard time, not just for Putin, but for all of Russia. In the wake of the Soviet Union's collapse, Russia enters a period of real strife and uncertainty in the country's future. When his friend, Professor Subchak, is elected as mayor of Leningrad, he appoints Putin as a special advisor on international affairs. As an interesting window into the principles of Putin, when Mayor Subchak loses his re-election, the victor, the ex-mayor's opponent, offers Putin a job. But Putin turns it down, saying, It's better to be hanged for loyalty than to be rewarded for betrayal. This idea of his of the importance of loyalty would come up again and again in his life. In 1996, he and his family moved to Moscow. He joins the agency that succeeds the KGB called the FSB, and he quickly climbs the ranks of the agency. In 1998, the then president Boris Yeltsin appoints Putin as the head of the FSB. And then something kind of interesting happens. In March of 1999, a video emerges that shows a rival of President Yeltsin's in bed with two women, neither of whom are his wife. And this move creates huge trouble for this rival and huge satisfaction to President Yeltsin. It was never proven, but it seems pretty clear in retrospect that Putin was somehow behind the release of this sex tape. And in August, a few months after the scandal, the president rewards Putin's loyalty and appoints him as prime minister. And then even more shocking, on New Year's Eve of 1999, President Yeltsin steps down and appoints Putin as acting president. One of Putin's first moves as president is to pardon Yeltsin for alleged crimes and provide him immunity from any prosecution. This is the beginning of Putin's long reign as Russian's iron grip ruler. Even when he steps down from the presidency at the end of his first term, when President Dmitry Medvedev was elected, a day later he made Putin the new prime minister. In 2012, Putin is re-elected and becomes the president once again. In some ways, Putin is kind of lucky with his timing. He's able to oversee Russia's revival, a lot of it based on their oil resources. But he also carefully crafts a very particular image for himself. And images flood the internet and TV shows of Putin riding shirtless on a horse and Putin doing judo moves. And there's even a weird story that comes from Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, a football team in America, who has always accused Putin of stealing one of his Super Bowl rings. You know, there's always been a lot of intrigue behind the scenes at the Kremlin. Add that to the mystery at the upper levels of the NFL, and you get one very bizarre story. This video from 2005 shows Russian President Vladimir Putin holding the Super Bowl ring that belonged to Robert Kraft. Putin admired it, even tried it on, and then kept it. That was CBS News. Part of the reason that Putin's able to control his image as well as he does is because over the years, he's orchestrated a gradual crackdown on the media and independent journalism in Russia. In 2014, they introduced a law that allowed the regulatory body to have more power over how it controls the internet in Russia. The law made it so that the prosecutor general could bypass the courts and make use of the regulator agency to directly block websites. Putin and his government have also been accused of intimidating political rivals, jailing journalists, and even secretly poisoning people seen as traitors. 
Putin and his government's attempt to crack down on the media and any opposition to Putin is really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all the nefarious activity of the government. One of the most famous examples of this is Russia's hacking of the 2016 US presidential election. It's been proven that hackers tied to the Russian government hacked into the Democratic National Committee and hacked associates of Hillary Clinton's campaign in an effort to kind of skew the results towards Donald Trump. And besides this, Russian bot accounts and masked social media accounts spread disinformation and tried to stoke tensions in the American public. So one example of this was uh, they set up a fake Facebook group called Blacktivists, which stoked racial tensions by posting militant slogans and really stomach-churning videos of police violence against African Americans. And this fake group actually had more hits than the real Facebook page for Black Lives Matter. Another awful thing that Putin and his government are accused of is supplying chemical weapons to Syrian President Bashir al-Assad in his attempt to squash dissidents during the Syrian civil war. Both of these charges were brought up during Putin's interview on NBC with Megyn Kelly, and to both of these charges, he vehemently denied that the Russian government, and especially himself, were in any way directly involved. Do you believe the chemical weapons attacks in Syria are fake news? Of course. First of all, the Syrian government long ago destroyed their chemical weapons. Secondly, we are aware of the plans of the insurgents to make things look like the Syrian army is using chemical weapons. These accusations that were used as a justification to consolidate efforts in fighting Assad. We're all well aware of it. We understand it. We're not even interested in it. I just feel like saying, simply boring. It's really fascinating to look at Putin's face during this interview and watch his responses. He doesn't get that emotional or defensive or angry necessarily. Even when he's getting kind of short with Megyn Kelly, he's, he's not like losing his cool. And there's almost kind of this amused twinkle in his eye sometimes. He even laughs outright a few times during the interview. No matter what charges are being laid at him, and no matter what he's saying and how completely false his responses become, he never seems to lose control over the situation. It seems like the truthfulness or falseness of what he has to say is completely beside the point for him. So it's no cause for anxiety or nervousness. Like the actual truth is irrelevant here. What is relevant is that he can't admit that the Russian government, or he himself, of course, are directly involved in any of these accusations as far as chemical weapons, as far as interfering in the U.S. election, because his country is already suffering massively from economic sanctions that are being levied at him by the United States and other countries. And with that object in mind, the only thing that he's thinking about is denial and the projection of strength. There's some things, though, that Putin and his government can't exactly deny. To what America is officially calling a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russian troops spreading out throughout the uh, strategic Crimean Peninsula. President Obama speaking with Russian President Vladimir Putin, apparently pulling no punches, although it is unclear what the White House can really do about all of this. That was ABC. Uh, Crimea is a part of Ukraine. Putin and his government kind of, in a way, ingeniously invaded and occupied this territory. Crimea is kind of a strange territory because even though it's part of Ukraine, it's dominated by Russian speakers and plenty of its residents are sympathetic to Russia. 
At the time of the annexation, Ukraine was in the middle of a revolution. So the Kremlin launched a kind of political manipulation campaign, making sure that negative news about Ukraine's revolution was dominating the Russian language media that people in Crimea were consuming. In the end, Putin was able to frame the invasion and annexation of Crimea as an act of salvation rather than a violation of international law and turned a revolution that could have marked the end of his rule into a major popularity boost. It's possible that Putin's popularity has been flagging a little bit in the most recent years, but to many he's still their revered strongman hero, protecting Russia against the attempted infiltration by the West and other countries. Even as the Russian economy suffers under sanctions, a lot of people say that while life is hard, they don't blame Putin for it, and he's doing the best he can. There was even a pop song that was made uh, as a tribute to him. It's called A Man Like Putin. The lyrics are about a woman who wishes that her boyfriend were like Putin, strong, and will never leave her. And that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Taryn Siegel. Thanks for listening. Bye.